Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Welcome to American Alchemy, Part 3. This series is meant to be listened to in chronological order, so if you've already not done so, I recommend going back and starting with Episode 1, American Alchemy, Part 1. This series aims to explore the unknown origins of the United States of America and how it was built on the foundations of occult, esoteric, and alchemical knowledge that seemed to be okay for the elites, but many, including many women, were burned at the stake, murdered, etc. You get the gist. We should never forget that even though we don't learn these things in school, this is the true history of our beloved United States of America. In episode two, we left off by discussing the fourth member of Churchton's alleged Rosicrucian secret society, Thomas Vaughn. Thomas Vaughn was involved in a plan by Robert Child to form an alchemical circle, 
but Vaughn referred to himself as a member of the secret society of something called the Unknown Philosophers. Vaughn, using the pen name Eugenius Philetius, was the author of Anthroposophia Theomagica, a book that weaves magic and mysticism with quotations about Plotinus and from the notorious natural philosopher or occultist Agrippa, and the pagan biographer Plutarch, and Virgil, the pagan poet of ancient Rome, not to mention Hermes Trismegistus and Pythagoras. Quote, I look on this life as the progress of an essence royal. The soul but quits her court to see the country, Vaughn wrote. He also complained, quote, It's an age of intellectual slaveries. If they meet anything extraordinary, they prune it commonly with distinctions or daub it with false glosses till it looks like the traditions of Aristotle. His followers are so confident of his principles that they seek not to understand what others speak, but to make others speak what they understand. It's in nature as it is in religion. We are still hammering old elements, but seek not the America that lies beyond them." End quote. Thomas Vaughn was the twin brother of Henry Vaughn, the physician and metaphysical poet who influenced everyone from poets like Woodsworth and Tennyson to that prophetic master of science fiction, Philip K. Dick. Thomas started out as a minister in his native Wales with a generous salary, including house and lands far beyond the average expectation for such a young man. John Walker wrote about Vaughan's case in Sufferings of the Clergy, which was published in 1714, reporting he was removed from his parish for, quote, drunkenness, swearing, incontinency. <laughs> so, like, incontinency, like he was shitting his pants. Okay. Being no preacher, and what was in their opinion worse than all, for having been in arms for the king, and perhaps the last article was the only proof and evidence of all the rest. Wow. Okay. But Vaughn admitted later in his writing that he, quote, reveled away many years in drinking. So he totally admits that he was drunk and a preacher and apparently shitting himself, I guess. The Civil War did far worse than remove preachers from their parishes. Death and mutilation were common to both sides. Vaughn retreated to his experiments and studies at Oxford. A tragic love story is at the core of Thomas Vaughn's life. He worked closely in his alchemical and mystical experiments with his wife, Rebecca, his soror, or sister, in the great work. Rebecca was no mere assistant. All the breakthroughs he achieved were either done with her help or by her inspiration. His work after her death merely played out what he'd already learned. Her skill was so great, he named one of their discoveries Aqua Rebecca, because without her help, he couldn't reproduce it. A bit of a sidebar for me here again. As they say, history is written by the victors. And it's something to keep in mind and something I've been really reflecting on lately the more I deep dive into some of these things is that all we have left is what was written and preserved. And many of these things were written by the people that were in power and most of them were men. We don't often hear the stories of the massive influence that women had in these circles as well. And it's tragic that we never really will. In 1658, Rebecca had nightmares about being attacked by a stallion. She then became sick. By April, as she lay dying, Vaughn obsessively chased after a formula he'd forgotten from his early days working with her. Perhaps he thought it would cure her, though he nowhere mentions this. 
Instead, when he exults at achieving his goal just as she died, the hollowness of his triumph echoes in the notes he jotted down, first published by A.E. Waite about 200 years later. Vaughn at first declares that the grief of losing his wife was so great in an impending loss was fuel for his efforts, and that he had been graced with successes as a compensation for the loss of his beloved. But over time, he shared the depths of his sorrow and tragedy of denial he felt keenly. He had allowed abstraction to draw him into escapist grand effort, and he missed the real moment of transformation, a moment that haunted him for the rest of his melancholy life. His notes end with bereft confessions of his yearning for her, his regrets, and a detailed, heartbreakingly fond list of every possession of hers still remaining to him. The notebook record of their work together he now flipped over and gave a new page. He invented a monogram out of the initials of her first name, his, and their last name, T.R.V. He used it to sign most of the entries, even the ones made after her death. Just before the first anniversary of her death, Thomas dreamed of Rebecca. She appeared covered in thin, loose silks of unearthly green. She was taller and her face was shining with an angelic glow. Just before meeting Rebecca in 1651, Tom had written Lumen de Lumine, or A New Magical Light, in which he described a goddess of wisdom dressed in green who finally enlightens him. Tom took Rebecca's appearance in the green dress in his dream as a clear message. She had been Beatrice to his Dante, and she could continue to be. For those of you who aren't aware, Dante's Inferno was written by Dante Alighieri, and in this famous poem, which details the different circles of hell, Beatrice is this guide that guides Dante through the Inferno. In the months following her death, he had dreams about her that brought him premonitions. For example, she appeared in a dream to correctly predict his father's death in June that same year. Haunted by so much death, Tom began having nightmares about the attacking stallion. He was certain his death was near. But at the end of August, he had a dream about his wife that left him feeling he now understood what the Bible meant by having a home in eternity. The melancholy Thomas Vaughan then followed the court as an alchemist supported by the king thanks to his friend, fellow royalist and partner in alchemical experimentation, Dr. Robert Murray whose accomplishments included being a judge, mathematician, statesman, soldier, diplomat, spy, and the first president of the Royal Society. Along with Ashmole, Murray is one of the two earliest recorded Freemasons in English history. Moray, probably assisted by Vaughan, helped Charles II with his own alchemical experiments. When he left the royal court for London for Oxford to escape the plague in 1665, Vaughan was included. In 1652, Vaughan had translated and published the Fama Fraternitas Rosicrucis, the bedrock document of the Rosicrucian movement, the first English edition since its original appearance in Germany 40 years earlier in 1614. Scholars have argued that Moray gave Vaughan a Scottish manuscript version of the Fama that had belonged to Moray's father. This had led to speculation that Moray was a Rosicrucian, but what does that mean exactly? that he was a member of a secret society of almost superhuman adepts, that he was one of the original participants in the benevolent conspiracy of a secret order of masons? What if he were merely inspired by the Rosicrucian writings? He doesn't mention Rosicrucians anywhere in his letters, but, of course, a Rosicrucian wouldn't. In 1664, 
John Winthrop Jr. wrote to Moray about his discovery of a faint star near the planet Jupiter that he thought might be a fifth moon. Modern astronomers hesitate to credit Winthrop with such a feat of visual acuity, but the evidence in the letter is undeniable. Moray said to have had a second sight, said to be common among Highlanders. He foresaw his wife's death, but not the death of his friend Vaughn. In 1666, one of their experiments led to Vaughn inhaling mercury fumes, killing him. Moray then paid for his friend's funeral. Moray lived another seven years. Near the end of his life, he became a recluse, living like a very poor person, obsessively pursuing alchemical experiments in a dirty laboratory. For all we know, he was having the time of his life, unfettered by court and other responsibilities. Or perhaps he was a senile, almost ghost, muttering to his old friend Tom Vaughn, when Moray died, the king ordered him buried in Westminster Abbey. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Robert Child was thought to be the writer behind the highly esteemed books, Iranius Philethetus. I am absolutely butchering that. A pseudonym that must have been a tribute to Eugenius Philethetus. Some historians have speculated that John Winthrop Jr. might have been the real Iranius Philethetus. <laughs> They're just going to make me say this name over and over. An obscure bit of evidence for Winthrop as Uranius first appeared in Ferguson's Bibliotheca Chemica, where the usually dependable bibliophile says that they're one and the same. In the Backstrom manuscripts in the Manley P. Hall collection in volume 12, in his notes to the anonymous manuscript, some curious processes, and in his notes to his handwritten copy of Lambsbrink's The Great Work, Sea Captain Alchemist Blackstrom wrote that Dr. Winthrop was actually Iranius. Most likely, Blackstrom was reporting an oral tradition, which of course doesn't necessarily make the identification true, but it's an intriguing detail. So will the real Iranius Philatheus please stand up? Please stand up? Oh my god. That's not me. This is this article. They're trying to make like a funny Eminem reference in this uh, deep alchemical analysis of the United States. <laughs> wow. The likeliest candidate is George Starkey. As Newman shows in his essay, in the Alchemy Revisited, striking similarities of source and expression can be found between letters sent from Starkey to Boyle and an alchemical work attributed to Arrhenius. George Stark as Starkey was originally known, was born in Bermuda, but educated at Harvard, where alchemy was all the rage. He settled down in Boston, where he practiced Paracelsian medicine professionally. His experiments with the technology of alchemy, as it was becoming chemistry, were serious enough that he left America for London in search of better materials for building his alchemical ovens. He had just gotten married and changed his name to Starkey. Recently, historians have argued that Starkey is actually America's earliest important scientist. Starkey's skills made him popular in Samuel Hartlib's circle of reformers and Paracelsian doctors and alchemists. He was known for being able to produce greater quantities of quality aromatic oils thanks to his secret process. His most famous demonstration or claim to the elixir was the rejuvenation of a withered peach tree. But his influence goes further than that. William Newman, professor of history of science at Indiana University, argues that Starkey was probably the most widely read American scientist before Ben Franklin. Starkey's work is said to have been an influence of three of the most influential intellectuals of the age, Isaac Newton, famous philosopher and physician John Locke, and mathematician and philosopher Gottfried Leibniz. 
Robert Boyle, a pioneer of scientific method and one of those most responsible for bringing the butterfly of chemistry out of its alchemy cocoon, was impressed when Starkey cured his until then incurable illness. Starkey then became Boyle's chemistry tutor. Boyle quotes Arrhenius Philatheus admiringly in his own works, but he does not appear to have known that Starkey was the author of the Arrhenius Philatheus books. If I'm mispronouncing this name, I'm mispronouncing it like 70 times. It's not one that I just have to say once. My bad. In fact, critics of the day complained that such a profound author should be distributed by Starkey, a difficult and unpleasant fellow. Recent studies of Starkey's notebooks reveal method and clarity closer to chemistry than alchemy. Irenaeus Philolatheus, and yes, I had to look up how to pronounce that name multiple times, wrote elevated prose inspiring to spiritual and political reformers alike. Of course, at the time, if you were one, you were likely to be the other. Irenaeus wrote in Alchemical Code, a language of metaphors. The uninitiated reader is left to wonder how to procure such ingredients as the doves of Diana, the menstrual blood of our whore, genical fire, hellfire in current lingo, and a fiery dragon. While possibly easier to obtain, the exact use or meaning of a hermaphrodite, a mad dog, and a chameleon remain obscure. Ganaical fire is apparently a universal solvent, but how to store something like hellfire that dissolves in anything it comes into contact with, literally disassembling the building blocks of our material world? And how exactly does the amalgam fly away seven times? Starkey presented himself as the editor and distributor of the secretive Irenaeus. From 1654 to 1683, over a dozen works were published, including The Marrow of Alchemy, Secrets Revealed, and The Secret of the Immortal Liquor Called Alkahest. Six of his works have titles that include the illustrious alchemical name of Sir George Ripley. After 20 years of study in Italy, where he was a favorite of Pope Innocent VIII, he went home to Great Britain in 1477 where he wrote The Compound of Alchemy, or The Twelve Gates Leading to the Discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. The book was dedicated to King Edward IV and was a favorite of his. Ripley was one of the very first to compose poetry on alchemy, and his magnificent scroll and many writings made him famous. His wealth was legendary and made it seem more plausible that he could turn lead into gold. There are only 23 copies of the Ripley scroll in existence. According to London's Science Museum, the scrolls are believed to be 18th century copies of variations of a lost 15th century original. I was fortunate as a kid to have perused one in the collection of Manley P. Hall with the great collector himself. Ripley also has the distinction of being perhaps the first to publish previously unknown manuscripts by the great Raymond Lull, who 200 years earlier had written groundbreaking works on not only mathematics, statistics, classification, and architecture, but also mysticism and the occult. Starkey seems to have enjoyed making up details about the life of Irenaeus. One might wonder about multiple personality disorder until the predicament Starkey was in becomes clear. 
Starkey, in his letters to Boyle, writes that he had received offers to use his secrets that could have made him very wealthy. Investors were eager for him to attempt gold and silver making on an industrial scale, but Starkey said that such a life would be a very hard labor to him, removing him from what he loved most, studying nature and learning its secrets. Starkey shared his secrets with Boyle only upon assurance that Boyle would never sell them. The illumination Starkey had received by grace of what he called the Father of Lights were not for mere vulgar profit. They were to contribute to the reform of the world, the restoration of paradise by divine revelation. It was a delicate situation. Starkey needed Boyle's financial support, so he had to show his efforts were worthwhile. But if he gave up too many of his trade secrets, he wouldn't be useful anymore. Starkey attributed part of his genius to his dreams. One of these dreams was a major contribution to the myth of the adept or initiate who appears to the most sincere alchemist. In a letter to Boyle, Starkey writes, Behold, I seem intent on my work, and a man appeared, entering the laboratory, at whose arrival I was stupefied. But he greeted me and said, May God support your labors. When I heard this, realizing that he'd mentioned God, I asked who he was, and he responded that he was my Eugenius. I asked whether there were such creatures. He responded that there were. Finally, I asked him what the alkahest of Paracelsus and Helmond was, and he responded that they used salt, sulfur, and an alkalized body, and though this response was more obscure than Paracelsus himself, yet with the response an ineffable light entered my mind, so that I fully understood. Marveling at this, I said to him, Behold, your words are veiled, as if it were by fog, and yet they are fundamentally true. He said, This is so necessarily, for the things said by one's Eugenius are all certain while those just said by me are the truest of all. Eugenius is Greek. The usual translation is well-born, but good spirit or great spirit, even guardian angel or higher self might be closer to the meaning Starkey intended. When Starkey turned his writing skills to political pamphleteering and then got caught up in lawsuits, his reputation was hopelessly tarnished. Then, in 1665, the Great Plague arrived in London, like Nosferatu on his ship of rats. George Thompson was a physician and writer on medical matters who rocked the British medical world when he removed the spleen of a dog but kept the poor animal alive for another two years. The old theory of body humors was disproved by that one experiment. Then, Plague came to London and Thompson stayed to do what he could do to help the patients, to study its symptoms. He even dissected the corpse of a plague victim. He was furious at the Royal College of Physicians for abandoning the population and fleeing to luxurious safety, so he wrote a pamphlet accusing them of dereliction of duty. English Neoplatonist and public Rosicrucian John Hayden, who practiced law and astrology side by side, responded that same year with a furious pamphlet, a quintuple Rosicrucian scourge, for the due correction of that pseudochemist and scurrilist empiric Geo Thompson. It makes me chuckle because it seems as though 
back then in the 1600s, this was like subtweeting for them, but they had to write furious pamphlets back and forth at each other instead of writing angry tweets back and forth or getting in fights in the comments section. Nothing much has changed, I suppose. Hayden was well known among royalists and occultists for his powers of prediction. He was supposed to have correctly foretold the end of Cromwell. Whatever powers he had didn't prevent him from being imprisoned in the tower two years later. Hayden was a notorious plagiarizer of everyone from Thomas Vaughan to Sir Francis Bacon. He can be classified with a certain type of metaphysical writer, colorful characters like L.W. de Laurence, who never hesitated to quote without attribution whole chunks of others' work word for word. Elias Ashmole called Hayden, quote, an ignoramus and a cheat. Thomas lived long enough to read Hayden's pamphlet attack on him thanks to George Starkey. Having spent so much time around plague victims, Thompson became himself a victim. He gave himself up to the medical services of Starkey. Starkey treated him with the dried powder of a toad. Thompson wore a dried toad around his neck as a booster. The irony was complete when Thompson recovered, but Starkey died. Thompson blamed it on the beer Starkey had insisted on having despite his sickness. Thompson suspected that the beer had counteracted the healing power of the toad powder. George Starkey died at age 37. If he was Irenaeus, most of his works were published posthumously. And now we move into a next section of the piece. Cotton Mather's famous Brian May impersonation. Cotton Mather was a complicated man. He vigorously denounced astrology and all forms of fortune-telling. Yet he knew how to cast an astrological chart and argued before the Royal Society that the influences of the stars and the zodiac on planting and harvesting should be measured. He was so eager to prosecute witches in 1689 that he published a bestseller, Memorable Providences, relating to witchcrafts and possessions. The book described the symptoms of witchcraft, feeding the frenzy of paranoia, and told the story of Goody Glover, an Irish laundress or aged mother of a laundress, whose sad distinction was to be the last woman accused of witchcraft in Boston to die at the end of a noose. She was an Irish slave, a widow like many other Catholics sold into slavery by Cromwell in the 1650s during the occupation of Ireland. By 1680, she and her daughter were working as domestics in Boston in the house of John Goodwin. In the summer of 1688, four of the five Goodwin children got sick. The presiding physician's diagnosis was, quote, nothing but a hellish witchcraft could be the origin of these maladies, end quote. Martha, a 13-year-old girl, sealed Glover's fate when she reported that they had all become ill after Martha's argument with a miserable old woman who had said rude things to her. During the court case, the frightened Glover refused to speak English, answering questions only in her native Gaelic. Mather insisted she could speak English perfectly well, but the interpreter carried about all the proceedings. Witnesses reported that the old woman seemed distracted and confused. Since the Puritans thought the Catholic Church was in service of Satan, the widow didn't have a chance. Cotton Mather was MC of the proceedings, 
full of windy pronouncements and divine revelations, bravely battling Satan in the new world with evidence of evil activities confessed by victims, for instance, the diabolical prank of stealing linen. Mather reported, quote, Order was given to search the old woman's house. From whence there were brought into the court several small images or puppets or babies made of rags and stuffed with goat's hair and other such ingredients. Glover, he continued, acknowledged that her way to torment the objects of her malice was by wetting of her finger with her spittle and stroking of these little images. He doesn't mention the resemblance to the Catholic practice of praying with rosary beads. Such voodoo dolls were a common feature of the witch trials. After Mather visited Grover in her cell, the persecuted Gaelic widow stroked her wet thumb on a smooth stone, muttering what must have been curses on Cotton Mather. Folk magic was a common feature of Puritan life. Like the sports superstitions of today's Christians, innocent well-intentioned acts of self-defense, perhaps like burning the tail of a bewitched pig, which then by sympathetic magic caused a burn on the witch's body. Mather wrote that he believed in the power of spells to heal injuries and sickness and knew many such instances, but most of it appears to be hearsay. One poor witch was identified when a sick boy supposedly bewitched provided a few snips of hair to be boiled. Mary Parker happened to show up to ask if she could buy some chickens. But she should have known that there were no chickens. There was as common knowledge in the community, though she insisted she did not know. Therefore, she must be lying, and the true reason she appeared at the door was the boiling hair that drew her. The widow Glover was found guilty and sentenced to death. They took her from jail to the gallows in a cart, parading her through the streets to be mocked and jeered at. A crowd watched the old woman die, then silently dispersed. Her body was left as a warning to other witches. Robert Califf, a Boston merchant who was one of the few who had known her, wrote, quote, Goody Glover was a despised, crazy, poor old woman, an Irish Catholic who was tried for afflicting the Goodwin children. Her behavior at her trial was like that of one distracted. They did her cruel. The proof against her was wholly deficient. The jury brought her guilty. She was hung. She died a Catholic." End quote. In 1988, the Boston City Council established Goody Glover Day in a strange gesture of reconciliation 300 years too late. Her curses seemed to have failed. Near the end of his life, Mather wrote, quote, I am able with little study to write in seven languages. I feast myself with the sweets of all sciences, which the more polite part of mankind ordinarily pretend to. I'm entertained with all kinds of histories, ancient and modern. I'm no stranger to the curiosities which, by all sorts of learning, are brought to the curious. These intellectual pleasures are far beyond any sensual ones. Mather's birthday was February 12th, and he died February 13th in Boston, where he had been born, aged 64. In his bestseller, Mather had paused in his penned pursuit of witches to describe the qualities of a proper Puritan. Quote, Let us more generally agree to maintain a kind of opinion, one of another, that charity without which even our giving our bodies to be burned would profit nothing. It is kind, it is not easily provoked, it thinks no evil, it believes all things, hopes all things. 
Puritans were not angry when they executed a witch. Anger was a quality of witches, not Puritans, who severely condemned it. How could Mather have written such irony with a straight face when he was advocating killing women and a few men? How could he consider himself free of evil thinking when he referred to Native Americans as Satan's, quote, most devoted and resembling children, end quote, and dismissed Quakers as demonically possessed? Mather was typical of the contradictions to be found among the Puritans. Another alchemist from Harvard College, William Stoughton, acting governor of the province of Massachusetts Bay, nevertheless presided over the Salem witch trials which he was chief justice. Mather almost prevented the Salem witch trials. He thought the best way to deal with the afflicted girl was to move her into his house where he and his family could help her and arrive at a better understanding of her predicament. Yet, tragically, Mather gave the Salem witch trials an especially destructive and irrational context when he argued that spectral evidence should be admissible. The girls were now free to unleash the full imagination of their psychotic breakdowns, and the court and community followed them. Yet Mather disapproved of aspects of the trial. His later attempts to cure witches were quiet and private. Mather lived long enough to become a champion of inoculation at a time when smallpox epidemics were killing off colonists as they had killed off so many natives, even entire tribes of natives. The battle to allow inoculation was a violent one. Many believed to use science for relief from a God-ordained scourge was akin to witchcraft. Here is a crucial moment in American history and in the history of American metaphysical religion. Why did the mother of the witch trials understand that smallpox inoculation was not a demonic temptation or the spreading of infection? Why did he consider it not only the answer to prayers, but also the reward of hard labor in laboratories? Why did he have enough faith to use it on his own child? So persuasive was Mather in his argument for inoculation that members of the opposition tossed a grenade into his house. He survived, and inoculation proved itself one family at a time, as people noticed it actually worked. Mather was the first-born American to become a member of the Royal Society. He remains an enigma. He condemned astrology, but praised alchemy. His favorite physician was alchemist John Winthrop Jr., eulogized by Mather as, quote, Hermes Christianus, the Christian Hermes, as good as saying the Christian pagan or the pagan Christian. New England wasn't the only American frontier where alchemy and astrology were popular. Tom Teekle was minister to several parishes for more than 40 years. He had to take on the extra parishes because so many had been abandoned, and the laziness of many of the remaining ministers was practically proverbial. He arrived in 1652, the year of the Commonwealth and the Protectorate Governor Richard Bennett replaced Crown Governor Sir William Berkeley. Berkeley was a popular governor during his 10-year first term, who encouraged diversification of crops in Virginia, as much independence as possible from the Crown. On the other hand, he strongly opposed the public schools, and his hostility to Puritans and Quakers caused him to help put in place a law to defend the purity of the doctrine of the Church of England. In 1660, due to the untimely demise of Commonwealth and Protectorate Governor Sam Matthews, Berkeley sailed from England, coming out of retirement to be governor again. 
his 17-year second term didn't go as smoothly as the first. He appealed to Charles II for financial aid for Virginia, but the King of England snubbed him in favor of free trade. In 1674, ambitious freeholders on the Virginia frontier were hungry for treaty-protected land that belonged to the native tribes. Governor Berkeley was friendly toward the natives. He believed their goodwill was a necessary part of the process of growing Virginia into a viable commonwealth. He had just convinced the chiefs of the Susquehannock tribe that negotiation was better than fighting when a troop of militia disobeyed his orders attacking the native village and killing the chief. The Susquehannocks counteracted in force, burning plantations and killing 60 Virginians. Berkeley wanted to build fortresses to protect the settlers instead of launching an all-out war. After all, he had fur trade investments that depended on good relations with the tribes. But the frontiersmen grumbled it was just an excuse to raise their taxes. Enter Nathaniel Bacon, who may have been the cousin by marriage of the governor's second wife. Bacon wasn't exactly grateful when Berkeley gave him a place on the governing council. Bacon emerged as the leader of the grumblers itching for a war with the tribes. Berkeley was hard of hearing and showing other signs of age when they thought him too feeble to govern. Bacon demanded a military commission, but Berkeley refused. Bacon led an attack anyway, leading 500 frontiersmen against two tribes that had not been involved in the fighting at all. Berkeley had Bacon arrested due to this, but Bacon's men went to his rescue and then they forced Berkeley into a new election that put allies of Bacon in power with the House of Burgesses, America's first Congress of local representatives. The vote limited the governor's power and gave more to the frontiersmen. In July 1675, a few months after the widely mourned death of John Winthrop Jr., a war party of natives attacked an outlying Virginia plantation. Not an unusual event in the last 30 years, but this time the attacks and retaliations continued and rumors of war spread across the Virginia frontier. July 30th, 1676, almost exactly 100 years before the birth of America, Bacon and his army issued the Declaration of the People of Virginia, accusing Berkeley of unfair taxes, appointing cronies, and failing to protect the locals from attacks by the tribes. The forces of the rebels and Berkeley's loyal troops battled. Six weeks later, Bacon took Jamestown and, in a strange demonstration of colonial leadership, burned it to the ground. It must have seemed comic justice when, about a month later, Bacon fell ill with dysentery and shit himself to death. Berkeley seized the opportunity of several rebels and sentenced 23 of them to the noose. By the time the king's 1,000 redcoats arrived to put down Bacon's rebellion, it was all over. A committee investigated and its report caused Charles II to remove Berkeley from the governorship and bring him back home to England. Thirty years later, in the colonies, the legend spread that Charles had commented, quote, That old fool has put to death more people in that naked country than I did here for the murder of my father, end quote. Tickle managed to navigate the chaos preserving his health and his wealth. He was notorious for arguing about his salary with the citizens who ran his parishes. He must have won the arguments because he became one of the wealthiest ministers in colonial America. He owned land and 11 slaves. Colonel Scarborough and others that attacked Tom's character, but Scarborough was notorious for summoning a gathering of natives by telling them that the Great Spirit would speak to them and then shooting them all down. He considered it a good business decision. 
Meanwhile, Tickle preached every Sunday that he was a popular choice for funerals. But we're interested in Tom because of his library, 317 books, almost as large as the libraries of John Winthrop Jr. and The Increase and John Mather. The 1697 Teagle estate inventory included all the Anglican and Puritan writers a well-educated Englishman would be expected to know. His library included many books on personal piety, but the occult section was also extensive, especially well-stocked with Rosicrucian books, including John Hayden's The Rosicrucian Infallible Axiomata, or General Rules to Know All Things Past, Present, and To Come. It also included Thomas Vaughan's Magia Ademica, or The Antiquity of Magic and the Descent Thereof from the Adam Downwards. And the Kabbalah was represented with Reich's classic De Arte Kabbalistica, his copy of the rogue Jesuit Kircher's Magnus Seride Arte Magnetica, was a stew of hermetic alchemical ideas. Estate inventories of other wealthy early Virginians also included books on astrology, alchemy, natural magic, palm reading, and Pythagoras. The most popular occult authors of early Virginia were astrologer physicians, namely Nicholas Culpepper, more famous these days for his The Complete Herbal, still considered a standard work of herbalism 300 years later, and William Salmon, author of the epic three-volume Practical Physic, shewing the method of curing the most unusual diseases happening to humane bodies, as all sorts of aches and pains, apoplexies, aches, bleeding, fluxes, gripings, wind, shortness of breath, diseases of the breast and lungs, abortion, want of appetite, loss of the use of limbs, colic or bellyache, appositions, thrushes, quinzies, deafness, buboes, <laughs> cachexis, stone in the reins, and stone in the bladder, to which is added the philosophic works of Hermes Trismegistus, Caligd, Perseus, Gerber Arabs, Artesius, Longivus, Nicholas Flamel, Roger Bacon, and George Ripley. Yes, I shit you not, that was the entire title of this book. <laughs> and it's kind of crazy, this is a side note for me, Harry Potter fans um, will know that Nicholas Flamel is a name that was mentioned in Harry Potter. In the book, he is known as the creator of the Sorcerer's Stone, or the Philosopher's Stone, but... Um, the average everyday person wouldn't realize that he's a true figure in occultism. So there you have it. As Darren Rutman wrote, quote, In sound mind and with clear conscience, a Virginian could account his poor hunting to the spell of another, could hold that only the horseshoe over his door protected his sick wife from the evil intentions of a neighbor woman who perforce passed it under her doorway to saying black prayers at his wife's bedside, could attribute to a witch the death of his pigs and withering of his cotton, and in court, faced with suits for slander, could insist that, quote, to his thoughts, apprehension, or best knowledge, two witches had rid him along the seaside and come home to his own house. And now we move to the next section of our exploration, Harvard and its occult origins. Harvard was a hotbed of alchemy. From its presidents to its graduates, alchemy was everybody's minor. John Allen, one of many alchemist graduates of Harvard, wrote in a letter to a friend that when facing situations where disease could be caught, keeping some gold between your teeth and gum does the trick. 
Apparently, the perfection of gold would ward off the causes of sickness. In July 1672, a Harvard graduate who had gone off to get a degree at Cambridge returned. Leonard Hoare arrived in Boston with a letter from 13 influential nonconformist ministers who'd helped pay for a new Harvard building. They urged that Hoare be hired as the new president of Harvard College since that redoubtable defender of full immersion baptism Charles Chauncey's 18-year presidency had ended with his death. Four of Chauncey's sons became alchemists like dear old dad. While the new building was finished and his quarters and salary were prepared, Hoare earned his bread preaching. In December of that year, Hoare became president of Harvard. Hoare, a friend of Robert Boyle, planned to add a research center to Harvard's core curriculum of classical study as practiced in Europe. Hoare's plans for Harvard included his own words, quote, a large, well-sheltered garden, an orchard for students addicted to planting, an ergasterium for mechanic fancies, and a laboratory chemical, end quote. Hoare added that the reading his students were doing was not enough. They needed practical experience. The president of Harvard sent his friend Boyle to some New England berries he had collected describing the process of distillation he'd used to procure a cure for colic. But Hoare was an unpopular outsider. His wife Bridget's father had been one of the regicides, the 59 commissioners who voted unanimously to execute Charles I. For unknown reasons, perhaps loyalty to the homegrown president of Harvard they'd expected, students quickly lost their respect for Hoare. They mimicked his gestures and speech. It didn't help his popularity when he ordered a student whipped for blaspheming against the Holy Ghost. Students abandoned the school in protest only until three students were left to graduate in 1673. One of those graduates was Samuel Sewell, a magistrate in the Salem Witch Trials, the only magistrate who admitted publicly his regret years later, calling for a day of prayer, fasting, and for reparations. Sewell was one of the few to stand up for horror when howls of his resignation arose, but to no avail. In 1675, Horror was forced to resign. Cotton Mather believed Horror's grief was so intense it weakened him and tuberculosis quickly killed him. But a decade later, Horror's alchemical vision of Harvard would come to life once again with the help of Charles Morton. Morton was born in Cornwall and educated at Oxford, where he'd studied the experimental side of natural philosophy. He arrived in New England in 1686, after legal action against him for his dissenting religious views drove him out of England. Morton was nominated president, but the position was filled before he arrived. Instead, he became Harvard's first vice president and a member of the corporation of the college. He wrote the textbooks of logic and physics for the college, the latter filled with alchemical knowledge, was almost a practical manual for experimentation. His lectures on philosophy were too popular or too radical, or both. Though he gave them only in his rooms, he got into trouble and had to stop. Perhaps his worst fault was his encouragement of the Salem witch trials. But there could be no more clear an illustration of the great chasm between alchemy and witchcraft in early America than the involvement of so many alchemists in the prosecution of witches. Though today, both activities are labeled occult, and seem to go together in the popular imagination. 
Morton also dismissed astrology as the work of the devil when it infrequently happened to be right, despite his use of astrological symbols and practices in alchemy himself. John Jacob Zimmerman was a professor at Heidelberg University who'd been a Lutheran minister when his great interest in astrology, biblical prophecy, and mathematics combined, as they so often have in a prediction about the day the world would end. Zimmerman convinced 40 young scholars to join him as the modestly named the Chapter of Perfection. They would journey to America to await the end, doing good works until then. Sadly, Zimmerman was the Moses of the community in more ways than one. He died just before the ship sailed for the New World, leaving leadership to a 21-year-old super-scholar with a Transylvanian accent named Johannes Kelpius. Beat poet Kenneth Rexroth may have been waxing poetic when he claimed Kelpius, quote, proved his powers by stilling the waves in a violent storm while crossing the Atlantic. In 1694, at the invitation of William Penn, Kelpius and the other scholars left the continent they thought hopelessly corrupt to settle a commune named Society of the Woman and of the Wilderness, the woman in the wilderness of the biblical book of Revelations, a passage most beloved by today's Christian survivalist. Kelpius has been called the first composer in the history of Pennsylvania, and the woman of the wilderness was the first community with a pipe organ in America. The founders of Woman in the Wilderness had pooled their belongings to come to America. Now they shared property and work equally. The 40 scholars built a 40 by 40 foot meeting house with 40 rooms they called the Tabernacle. On top, they built an astrological observation deck with mounted telescopes. By day, they practiced trades including physician, bookbinder, lawyer, clockmaker, teacher, and builder. They grew herbs and vegetables. At night, they watched the stars looking for signs of the end of the world. They joined together also to study alchemy and the Kabbalah, the writings of Hermes Trismegistus and the mystics Meister Eckhart and Jacob Bohm. When one of the 40 died or decided to leave, he was replaced from the next in a long line of volunteers back home in Germany. This strange group built around the impending doom of the world continued to practice celibacy in anticipation of the apocalypse even after it didn't occur on the date in question. Kelpius would look to the stars for corrected calculations several times before doubt began to creep in. It must have been a beautiful place, but it becomes less romantic when you discover some, including Kelpius himself, slept like hermits in caves. Kelpius died in 1708 of tuberculosis, but the community survived until 1740, when reduced to only seven men, it welcomed Conrad Bessel. Bessel started out as a baker, but religious revelation had drawn him to Woman of the Wilderness. He formed a new community with a cloister at the center called Camp of the Solitary, better known as Ephrata. Married members lived on surrounding farms, but the men and women in the cloister were celibate. They wore white robes, practiced nonviolence, performed sacred hymns, and were the first vegetarian community in American history except for Communion Day, when they ate lamb. The resemblance to the Orphics is obvious. Basil was not only a spiritual leader, he also played violin, composing music and writing hymns to be performed in four, five, six, and seven-part harmony. 
He ran Ephrata's singing school, where he devoted himself to applying the principles of alchemy to song. Chronicon Ephrastense, the chronicle of the cloister's history, says of the science of singing, quote, This science belongs more to the angelic world than to ours, end quote. Ephrata historian Julius Sash wrote of Basil's music concepts, quote, this singular system of harmony was an original evolution from the brain of the magus and has the additional distinction of being the first original treatise on harmony to be published in the Western world, end quote. We don't know exactly what Bessel meant when he called musical notes letters, writing, quote, special care must be taken to bring out the distinguishing quality of each letter and this requires such diligence and cost so much labor that we cannot here describe it, end quote. To cultivate what he called an angelic voice, the singer would need to give up meat, milk, cheese, eggs, beans, and honey. Water was acceptable, but not when used excessively in cooking because it can cause food to become, quote, unnatural delicacy. The music of Ephrata cannot be exactly reproduced since the special training the singers used to receive apparently has been lost. Ephrata imported from Germany one of the earliest printing presses in the colonies, now in the collection of Junata College in Pennsylvania. The press is still functional. Ephrata also began America's love affair with Fraktur, where calligraphy meets illustrative art. Despite his relaxing activities, Basil was hot-tempered in the Chronicle records, his two-hour rants at his singers who could never be pure enough or try hard enough. Most of his singing rehearsals ended in tears. But the result was music of such mythic beauty. Cultured visitors who had enjoyed the opera houses of Europe said it haunted them more than any other singing they had ever heard in their lives. In Ephrata, the telescopes were still trained to the stars, looking for signs of the longed for the second coming, but no exact dates were offered. Rumors of sexual misconduct were the only possible outcome when local girls began deserting their families to join. Later, Ephrata became a medical center for the wounded soldiers of Washington's Continental Army during the Battle of Brandywine in the American Revolution, but the community slowly died off. When the last celibate died, the married farmers of Ephrata became German Seventh-day Baptists. Women of the Wilderness and Ephrata were claimed as pioneer Rosicrucian communities by the early 20th century public American Rosicrucian organization, AMORC. Here again, we run into the blurry definition of Rosicrucian. Like the term New Age, it means many different things, from fraud all the way to truth depending on the holder of the opinion. Ephrata Cloister had the same preoccupations as woman in the wilderness. Astrology, sacred music, the writing of the German mystics, and the esoteric interpretation of the Holy Bible. But there is no proof that they were Rosicrucians. Of course, as always, if they were Rosicrucian, they weren't permitted to mention it. But the most comfortable definition seems to be generalized rather than particular. Perhaps you could say they were an offshoot of Rosicrucian counterculture, the way so-called hippies were an offshoot of the beats. Then these communities would not be the planned results of the precise actions of a secret society, but the collective activity of many individuals 
willing to contribute whatever they could to the grand project of a better tomorrow. By 1720, alchemy as a cultural force waned somewhat in the colonies, as the forces of conformity mustered around established churches, and the publishing and import of spiritually controversial books was suppressed. Every generation, within every state, was reminded that the occult, now often included alchemy as well as witchcraft, was prohibited. Alchemy was then demoted to the world of folklore and fraud. Yet, in 1720, Cotton Mather was still complaining about the locals using occult methods to cure their illnesses. Charles Morton exchanged letters with Benjamin Franklin about the Philosopher's Stone in 1773. But by 1774, a satiricist wrote about, quote, a solemn old fellow in homely rustic dress, spouting off about alchemy and astrology while drinking wine in a New Jersey tavern. In 1785, in Altoona, Pennsylvania, the mysterious secret symbols of the Rosicrucians from the 16th and 17th centuries was published. Most of the text is in German. The lavish illustrations combine alchemical symbolism with citations from the Holy Bible, clearly showing the influence of the Theosophy of Jacob Bohem. The title page promises to be, quote, a simple ABC booklet for young students practicing daily in the school of the Holy Ghost made clear to the eyes by pictorial figures for the exercises of the new year in the natural and theological light by a brother of the fraternity of the Holy Cross. They loved a long ass book title, as we can see. The Reverend Ezra Stiles, president of Yale College from 1778 to 1795, studied alchemy, though he denied it in writing. Interpersed among my miscellaneous writings may perhaps be found things respecting the Rosicrucian philosophy, which may induce some to imagine that I have more knowledge of that matter than I really have. I have no knowledge of it at all. I never saw transmutation, the orific powder, nor the philosopher's stone nor did I ever converse with an adept knowing to be him as such. The only man I ever suspected as a real and true adept was Rabbi Tobias of Poland, but he evaded my interrogatives and communicated with me nothing I believe he was only a conjectural, speculative philosopher. I have known two or three persons who believed the reality of the philosopher's stone, but neither of them ever obtained it. They're only conjectural and speculative philosophers, and of such, Dr. Franklin told me that there were several at Philadelphia. I never had, or made an experiment with, a furnace or emblemic in all my life. I am not versed in the books of the adepts. I have seen but few of those authors, and read less, perhaps, of all the little I've read collectively would not equal a common octavo volume. I'm infinitely less acquainted with that than any other of the sciences of the whole encyclopedia of literature. I never absorbed the extracted sulfur of gold and terra. I have no practical knowledge of the matter. The few ideas I have about it are only imaginary, conjectural, and speculative." End quote. He certainly knew many details of a subject he claimed to know nothing about. Another prominent American with an approach to alchemy that didn't involve laboratories was General Ethan Allen Hitchcock, a friend of Abraham Lincoln, teacher of Edgar Allan Poe, Robert E. Lee, and every Union general in the entire Civil War. He redefined the study of alchemy when he published Remarks Upon Alchemy and the Alchemists in 1867, arguing that alchemy was much more spiritual path than one of science. Carl Jung took the same approach in his own alchemical studies. 
Witchcraft accusations continued into the 1700s, some reaching trial but never execution. After the birth of the United States in 1776, alchemists, fortune tellers, and witches soon disappeared into the backwoods of American culture, becoming curiosities, though their practices never completely died out and would often blossom into new popularity, for example, during the late 20th century New Age movement. Generations of historians completely ignored these embarrassing alchemical and astrological roots, instead emphasizing only the mainstream Christian ones. They carefully sainted certain alchemists, proclaiming them early chemists. Only in the last decades have academic authors risen to the challenge of presenting the alchemists of early colonial America in all their contradictory glory. The impact of this previously hidden source of American cultural identity couldn't be more obvious. America is an alchemy experiment. Americans are still obsessed with the magical cure, the pill that rejuvenates, the gimmick that metaphorically or even better really turns lead into gold. Our favorite TV shows like American Idol are usually based on the process of distillation. From myriad elements, one pure product emerges refined and ready to make somebody rich. The same distillation process fascinates us in sports as we root for the championship and the MVP. It's why we hold CEOs and billionaires in such high esteem as if they are rare gold and while we are common lead. Our comic books and popular movies based on them tell stories of misfit scientist heroes who band together, often in secret, to save humanity. An argument could be made that the quest of the alchemists and the goals of Rosicrucian-inspired reformers shaped American society more than any other cultural influence, including denominational Christianity. And like our alchemist founders, we're still obsessed with the end of the world. So the next time someone reminds you that America was founded by Christians, nod your head in agreement and say, yes, by Christians, alchemist, astrologer, Neoplatonist Christians. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. My selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors or creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social media and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, Life, what is it but a dream? Night-night, bitch.